This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The humidity rose thickly from the red Tennessee dirt. Sweat rolled down John Bell's forehead as he inspected his corn. The leafy green plants were chest high. It was a fine crop this season. Something rustled. John took the rifle from the sling on his shoulder. Perhaps it was a deer. Hmm, something for dinner. He frowned. The rustling from the plants sounded foreign. Something was wrong. He silently crept closer. He saw a flash of fur. Whatever it was, it was a good size. Suddenly, it dashed out from the stalks of corn. John froze. The rifle slackened his grasp. It had the body of a large dog. Matted brown fur. Curly, like one of them fancy poodles. But the head... It was all wrong. It looked like the head of an oversized furless rabbit. Naked, pink, with long ears. Spittle dripped from its mouth. Its quivering nose sniffed the air, scenting John. It skulked closer, its four legs awkwardly moving in a strange hopping gait. John took a step back. The creature came close enough that John could see the odd yellow-brown pupils of its eyes. Just in time, he remembered his rifle and took a shot. He missed. But the noise scared the beast. It darted back into the towering green stalks. Feeling shaky, John sank to his knees. The feeling in his body was foreign and heavy. Something was wrong with this place. Terribly wrong. He knew then that his life would never be the same. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday... I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the old Bell Farm homestead near Adams, Tennessee, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as podcasts, other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, on Twitter, at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. Many of you have asked how you can support Haunted Places. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. A 
About an hour outside Nashville, amid the rolling greens of Robertson County, lies the small city of Adams, Tennessee. Adams isn't much to look at. A two-lane highway cuts through a handful of shops, homes, and churches. However, Adams has passed into American folklore history. Once upon a time, Adams was known as Red River, a settlement on the edge of the U.S. frontier. The Bell family were among a wave of white settlers that came to the Red River region in search of a good life. However, nothing could have prepared the Bells for the terror that tore their dreams asunder. Sometime around 1805, John Bell, his wife Lucy, their many children, and their slaves endured a long, difficult trip from North Carolina to settle in Tennessee. The Bells were granted a homestead, growing corn, tobacco, and other crops. Over time, the Bells became relatively prosperous. The family had three more children, for a total of 11. Betsy was born in 1806, and her brothers Richard in 1811 and Joel in 1813. But then, odd things began to happen. Sometime in 1817, John Bell was inspecting his crops when he encountered a strange animal with the head of a rabbit and the body of a dog. John shot at the creature, but it escaped. 11-year-old Betsy and her brothers frequently played in the woods near the farm. They also saw strange, unidentifiable animals, an unusually large bird, and on one occasion, saw a ghostly little girl in a green dress dangling from a tree. (laughs) Around this time, members of the Bell family began to have trouble sleeping. John's eyes shot open. The noises were happening again. He sat up in bed, straining to see. Only a faint haze of light came from the banked embers on the hearth. For several days now, something had been gnawing on the cabin at night. He couldn't understand. During the day, they had checked the cabin for mouse or bat infestation. But there was none. Besides, mice weren't that loud, were they? John threw back the covers. Beside him, Lucy slept peacefully. She was never disturbed by the noises. He lit the oil lamp and crept toward the corner of the room where the sound seemed the loudest. His hunting dog darted from behind John, barking like mad at the empty corner. John stumbled back in surprise, tripping over the dog, nearly spilling the oil lamp. The dog continued to bark at nothing. Lucy stirred at the barking, sitting up in bed. An icy shiver trickled down John's spine. He hadn't even heard the dog come up behind him. Usually it slept in the other room, guarding the children. Almost on cue, Betsy screamed from the children's room. The dog took off like a shot as John turned to run toward his daughter. Betsy had had another one of her nightmares. She told her father that a monster was scratching her. John made a big deal out of looking around the room and under the beds to comfort the children. But really, he was looking for the source of the noise. He sat bedside until they drifted back to sleep. For the second time that night, Betsy screamed loud enough to wake the dead. 
John sprang up and rushed into the bedroom, Lucy hot on his heels. Betsy was wailing that a ghost had slapped her. A large red bruise in the shape of a hand was spreading across her cheek. Lucy questioned the boys, but they both denied hitting Betsy. Suddenly, John heard an evil chuckle. It rang from every corner of the room. The children huddled on Betsy's bed, hugging their mother, terrified. The patriarch could no longer ignore the truth. There was a spirit in his home, and it wanted to harm his family. John dropped to his knees and grimly held out his hands to his family for a prayer circle. Only the power of God would deliver them from this evil. At first, the Bells kept the haunting secret. They were good Christian folk and were embarrassed should they suffer at the hands of an evil spirit. However, night after night, the torment continued. A pall fell over the household. The bells became fearful and jumpy, their eyes bloodshot. They shuffled through their waking lives, exhausted, looking for peaceful rest, yet dreading the night ahead, haunted by the terrible memories of their dreams. They were becoming ghosts themselves. The sharp pinching and the scratching made their skin burn the weird animal noises that they couldn't block out with pillows, the sense that something was in the room with them, lurking just beyond the circle of light cast by the oil lamp. They couldn't see it, but they could feel its spite. When the presence began tying Betsy's hair to the bedpost in the middle of the night, the bells knew they needed to do something. Sleep-deprived, confused, and worried, John Bell turned to a close friend, James Johnston, for help. Incredulous, James agreed to spend the night in the Bell cabin to experience the haunting himself. He snuggled into the bed. It was comfortable. He hadn't wanted to steal John and Lucy's bed, but they insisted, choosing to bunk down in the living room. He wasn't sure he believed the crazy tale John had told him, and yet... The thought that John was a stalwart man of his word followed him as he drifted off to sleep. It was twilight. James was walking through his tobacco fields, enjoying the cool of the evening. He was suddenly struck with a feeling of nameless dread. Something, something terrible was behind him. He slowly turned around but only found tobacco plants bent under sudden gusts of wind. An invisible, inhuman force knocked James to the ground. James woke up as he hit the floor. Disoriented, he looked around. The room was dim, the low-turned oil lamp making the furniture cast great shadows on the walls. The same weird growling James had heard in his dream filled the room. He got to his feet. Show yourself. Who are you? What do you want? John came bursting in the room and James looked at him with resigned eyes. The visitor felt sorry for his friend then. He knew whatever the thing was on the Bell Farm was there to stay.
We'll hear more about what that spirit was after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1818, word had spread through the Tennessee frontier and beyond of the Bell family's predicament. Newspapers picked up the story of the haunting. The tale was whispered around campfires. The bells were prayed for by various religious communities. Although the bells seemed to be haunted by a poltergeist, that is a ghost who can cause physical disturbances, the spirit on the farm was dubbed the Bell Witch. James Johnston maintained that the first night he stayed over at the Bell home, he had heard the spirits say, Witch and recite Bible verses. Upon further questioning, the bell witch stated that she wished to be called Kate. In addition to mocking people, Kate answered questions, gave sermons, passed along local gossip, and debated religious issues. She seemed to be able to leave the farm for short periods of time and would visit other homes. In one encounter, Kate accurately mimicked the accent and speech of the parents of an Englishman who doubted her existence. Disquieted by the encounter, the Englishman quickly left the Bell Farm. Later, after returning home, he wrote to the Bells, apologizing for his disbelief. Apparently, Kate had popped over to Britain and visited his parents. All attempts to banish Kate through prayer, holy water, or reasoning failed. However, there was one time when a neighbor named William Porter came close to getting rid of Kate. William stoked the fire and quickly changed into his long johns before getting it to bed. Fall had come early this year, and the night air had a definite snap to it. Sure is cold, Kate said tauntingly. William groaned and put the pillow over his head. He hated Kate. He was sure Kate only showed up to his home to torment him because she sensed his animosity. Shivering, William ignored Kate and snugged down in the bed. I'll keep you warm, William, Kate said. William felt something pull back the cover. The bedding depressed as Kate slid into the bed next to him. His blood ran cold. He lay there trembling. He was afraid to turn over and see what was lying next to him. But then it suddenly occurred to him that if Kate had a body, she could be caught. He steadied himself. It's now or never, he thought. One, two, on three, William leaped out of bed, smothering Kate in the blankets. He rolled her up tight, like an overstuffed sausage. He didn't get a look at her, and frankly, he was too scared to pull back the blanket to see. William hoisted the squirming bundle in his arms and carried it across the room toward the fireplace. All of a sudden, his legs were shaky. With every step, 
the bundle grew heavier, and his body felt weaker. His vision began to waver, and suddenly the room had a terrible smell, like animal waste baking in the sun. Come on, William thought. He could do this. He could get rid of Kate. Sweat formed on his forehead. His stomach churned. Three more steps to the fireplace. He could do it. He collapsed, just short of the fireplace, covered in sweat, shaking, holding back vomit. Kate, still rolled up tight in the blanket, landed near him. William lay on the floor, his cheek pressed to the smooth wood. He felt the blankets moving. The blankets rose in the air, unfurling. He could feel her fingers stroke his cheek. She whispered to him, Poor dear, poor little weak William, inferior now, inferior always. His face flushed, and his body shook, but he could only lie still in his shame. Then, Kate was gone. And all William could do was painfully crawl to the door for some fresh air. For years, the bells were haunted by the spirit who was sometimes kindly and other times hostile, according to her whims. Betsy and her father John seemed to get the worst of the abuse, while Kate respected Lucy, once calling her the most perfect woman to walk the earth. Poor Betsy was frequently scratched, bruised, and taunted by Kate. Amid the strain of Kate's taunts and threats, John's health began to deteriorate. He had trouble eating and eventually took to his bed. What happened next solidified the legend of the Bell Witch in American folklore. Kate hovered over John Bell as his shaky hand groped for the medicine on his nightstand. It had taken her ages to grow strong enough that she could bend the physical world to her will. She had whispered over and over the suggestion to make poison in the old woman's mind. Once the poison was made, it was grueling for Kate to carry the bottle to the bell home. After switching the medicine for poison, Kate had faded away too weak to sustain a presence in the world of the living. It was many days before she could come back, but it had been worth it. For now, old John Bell was about to pay for his sins. He didn't deserve Lucy. He didn't deserve his family at all. Kate watched as John carefully measured out a teaspoon of what he thought was medicine, dissolved it in water, and drank. Within seconds, John was writhing on the bed in pain, his flesh burning from the inside out. Kate savored the spasms and the look of terror on his face before he frothed at the mouth and the light faded from his eyes. She could hardly wait for the moment when the family found him. Betsy had come to wake her father after he missed breakfast, She took one look at her father's gray, rigid face and knew. Lucy, hearing the ruckus, rushed in to find her daughter weeping on her husband's chest. 
Lucy gathered Betsy in her arms and rocked her back and forth. John Jr., Richard, and Joel ran into the room to see what was going on. John Jr. respectfully closed his father's eyes while Richard went for the doctor. John Jr. was covering his father's body with a sheet when he noticed a glass vial full of murky liquid on the bedside table. He showed it to his mother, puzzled. It didn't look like the medicine Dr. Hop had prescribed. In fact, no one in the house had seen this bottle before. They caught one of the house cats and gave it a few drops of liquid from the vial. To the horror of the Bell family, the cat convulsed and was dead within seconds. John Jr. immediately threw the vial into the fireplace. The bottle shattered, and white blue flames shot up from the fire. In American folklore, Kate has the distinction of being the only ghost ever to directly murder a person. The poor Bell family wasn't even allowed to mourn properly, as Kate even interfered with their grieving process. Betsy stared at her father's body. He lay in his coffin, dressed in his Sunday suit, with a posy of flowers clutched to his chest. Members of the church, family, and friends stood graveside as the preacher spoke words of comfort and peace. But for Betsy, there was no peace. She wanted to scream, run, shout. It would make no difference. Kate had killed her father. A wave of hate rose up in Betsy as Kate broke into a body drinking song, interrupting the funeral. Joshua felt Betsy's body tense. He slid comforting arms around her. Betsy felt new tears rush into her already swollen eyes. Dear, sweet Joshua, he was so thoughtful. He had been her dearest companion when they were young, and now they were engaged. Kate pulled her hair. Betsy struggled against the force, gritting her teeth, endeavoring to keep her head down. She stepped slightly away from Joshua, trying not to disturb the ceremony. Betsy's head snapped back in a particularly hard jerk. Kate whispered in her ear, You will not have happiness with Joshua Gardner, and future generations will see it true. Betsy's blood ran cold. Images raced through her head. Any chance she had to be happy with Joshua would be ruined by Kate. The ghost would kill him if she had to. Betsy collapsed, mad with grief. Joshua led her away from the funeral, taking her home so the doctor could put her to bed with a tonic. She lay abed for days before she came to a decision. She couldn't bear it if something happened to Joshua. She knew what she had to do. In 1821, having tormented John Bell for five years, Kate allegedly poisoned him. Heartbroken over her father's death and worried about her future, Betsy ended her engagement to Joshua Gardner soon after. After the death of John Bell and Betsy's broken engagement, Kate quieted down. She ceased her daily torment of the Bell family, eventually telling them that she was leaving and would not trouble them for seven years. 
Seven years passed, and the Bells got on with their lives. Betsy married Richard Powell and moved away from the family homestead. When Kate returned in 1828, the remaining members of Bell household, Lucy, Richard, and Joel, resolved to ignore the spirit. Kate spoke to them a few times, prophesying about the future, including predicting the Civil War. However, the Bell's plan to disregard the ghost paid off. She simply seemed to fade away. Even as the fervor around the Bell Witch haunting died, stories of encounters continued to be told and retold, cementing the legacy of the Bell Witch into American culture. Betsy went on to raise a family and live a full life, dying at age 82 in 1888. Once she got married and left home, for the rest of her life, she refused to speak of the Bell Witch and allegedly also refused to sleep alone. We'll have more of the legend of the Bell Witch after this. Now, back to the story. In 1894, Martin Van Buren Ingram published his book, An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch, reviving interest in the story. Ingram had promised the Bell family that he would delay publishing until those involved in the haunting passed away. Ingram's book has turned out to be the first in a long line of books, both fiction and nonfiction, written on the topic. The Bell Witch legend has proved so popular that various movies, songs, and TV projects have been created around the folklore. Many researchers and mediums have investigated, trying to determine what actually happened on the Bell Farm. Put simply, where did Kate come from? Some have claimed that the Bell family and even the whole Red River region were simply caught up in the grip of paranoia. When Kate started appearing, it was during a time rife with complex issues. John Bell and his older sons had fought in the War of 1812, which actually lasted until 1815, and may have returned home with PTSD. In 1815, Mount Tambra in Indonesia erupted, altering climates around the world and causing famine for the next few years. These societal issues fueled religious tent revivals across the U.S., where people would speak in tongues and cast out demons. Due to the times and their fervent faith, the Bell family were primed for a delusional fantasy. Other theories are simpler. One explanation is that the Bell homestead was built on sacred Native American land. Kate was a vengeful ghost disturbed from her eternal rest. John Bell had a business dispute with a difficult neighbor named Kate Patz. Although she claimed to have no connection to the poltergeist, many speculate Kate Batts was a witch and cursed the Bell family for revenge. Others surmise that Betsy's husband, Richard Powell, was an occultist. Richard was Betsy's school teacher prior to being her husband. Allegedly in love with her for years, he conjured up the ghosts as a prank to get Betsy to dump her intended Joshua Gardner. Mysteriously, Richard Powell's wife died around the time Betsy broke off her engagement to Joshua. 
Several descendants of the Bell family still live in the greater Red River region, long after Kate vanished. A number of Bell's descendants have had odd and possibly supernatural experiences. They've been attacked out of the blue by animals, especially mysterious dogs, heard ghostly voices, and had items in their homes knocked to the floor. Ghostly images, bright balls of light, and the semi-translucent outlines of mysterious figures have appeared in family pictures. Several males of the Bell family have died in tragic freak accidents at fairly young ages. Some descendants of the Bell family have embraced the haunting, appearing on TV shows and exploring the family lore. Others want nothing to do with the legend, claiming that it makes their family seem crazy. When visiting Adams, there are a few places of great interest to the Bell Witch legend to enjoy. A Bell family memorial can be found at Bellwood Cemetery. The city's civic offices are located in the former Bell Elementary School, which was built in 1920 and named for a descendant of John Bell. The office has a little museum in a community room, featuring pictures, newspaper clippings, and artifacts related to the Bell Witch haunting. A couple of old buildings have been relocated to a plot across from the school, including a log cabin with various artifacts built by John Bell around 1810. Last but not least, you can visit Bell Cave. Though the Bell family no longer owns the original homestead, the area has been turned into a museum, complete with a recreation of the cabin the Bell family lived in during the time of the haunting. The cave was a favorite play area for Betsy, her brothers, and her friends. One tale about Kate says that one day while playing in the cave, one of the children got stuck in a hole in a side tunnel. Kate pulled the child free. Some say that Kate retreated to the cave after 1828 and still lingers there. There was a huge sign announcing the rules for the Bell Cave posted on the side of the Red Barn. It said, no alcohol, profanity, pets, video cameras strictly prohibited. Matt tried to take a goofy selfie of himself and Carly in front of the sign, but Carly bailed, giving her dad a look that indicated he was embarrassing her again. Carly was 11, and lately everything her dad did seemed to embarrass her. The teenage tour guide told spooky stories as she shepherded the small group through the reproduction of the bell cabin. Matt secretly thought the whole legend was a joke. However, Carly seemed really into the tour. As she walked them down the trail to the cave, the guide worriedly looked up at the sky. Clouds were rolling in from the east. She warned them that they should leave the cave if it began to rain, the little creek that ran through it could flood. The cave was cool and moist. A few safety lights had been installed, but it was still plenty dark. The group seemed compelled to talk in hushed voices, as though it was a sacred space. The rough stone walls were covered in gouges, where Native Americans had chipped loose chunks of flint. There were several rock formations, including a limestone patch that resembled a witch in a hat. 
out of nowhere, an odd, salty taste began to form in Matt's mouth. His stomach felt funny. At first, it was just a sense of unease, but soon he felt like something was weighing him down, pressing on his chest. It exhausted him. He sat down on a large boulder in a corner to wait it out. As the storm outside began, Matt told his daughter they should go. The other tourists were also leaving. Carly nodded and headed toward the cave entrance. Matt tried to stand up, but couldn't. His body felt welded to the rock. He tried to squirm. He could move his arms and legs, but not his torso. It was the strangest thing. Wind suddenly swept through the cave. It was raining harder now. The water had reached his ankles and was rising quickly. Daddy! Realizing that he wasn't behind her, Carly had turned back. Matt was trying not to panic. He tried to wiggle, but his butt might as well have been made out of stone. The water was halfway up his shins. His daughter pulled on his arms, but he didn't move an inch. The odd sound of the wind sent shivers down his spine. Everything about the storm here felt amplified and alive. It vibrated and boomed off the walls. Matt could feel the torrent of the storm course through him from the rock upon which he was stuck. A crack of lightning hit the mouth of the cave, and from the spot it hit the ground came a languid wisp of smoke. It drifted through the cave, and as it did so, it shape-morphed, growing limbs and what looked like long tendrils of hair. And just as Matt swore he saw the shape of a woman, the smoke disappeared. Suddenly, Carly went still, dropping her arms. Her face was blank. Her eyes rolled back in her head. She nodded slowly. She seemed to be listening to someone Matt couldn't see. The water lapped at his waist. It soaked through his pants and numbed his legs. It was knee-deep on Carly. Matt yelled to her to go for help. Finally, she blinked, disoriented, as if she was coming out of a trance. This is her cave. Matt's mouth went dry with fear. Kate was real and she wasn't going to let him go. Matt frantically begged for Kate's forgiveness, pleading for his life, for Carly's life. All the while, the water was still rising. His throat started to scratch, and he grew coarse. His voice was weak now, pathetic against the sounds of the storm. And just when he was ready to abandon hope, Kate's laughter echoed through the cave, and Matt came loose. He slipped and landed in the water. He struggled to his feet against the frantic stream and grabbed Carly's hand. The two of them waded toward the mouth of the cave, leaning on each other to support their exhaustion. The moaning wind whipped up just as they reached the opening. Carly paused, listening to something only she could hear. Matt looked at her and asked what the bell witch said. 
but Carly only smiled and shrugged. She allowed her father to hold her hand all the way to the car. Tourists have reported all sorts of interesting occurrences when visiting the Bell Cave. Hearing voices, odd moaning gusts of wind, seeing figures made of smoke, feeling oppressed and weighed down physically or emotionally when in the cave, as if someone or something was sitting on your chest, hearing footsteps and growling. Tourists have been known to steal rocks from the Bell Cave or the town of Adams as souvenirs. Supposedly, taking a memento is a no-no. Kate hates it. Rocks are often shipped back to Adams, with notes explaining that they didn't believe in the curse until they were plagued with freakish bad luck. If you choose to visit the Bell Cave, please follow the rules. No filming, no alcohol, no pets, and no profanity. Choose appropriate footwear, as the cave is often quite wet and slippery. We suggest ignoring the urge to take a pebble as a memento. You might end up regretting it. Listen to the tour guide's stories respectfully. Don't ask mocking questions or roll your eyes. Kate is out there, watching and waiting for the right time to return. If you're not careful, she just may follow you home. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. A new episode comes out every Thursday. Listen to all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy Haunted Places, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Candace Rogers. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>